welcome to Captain's Log, where theology, philosophy, and culture meet sci-fi at warp speed. This is episode 5, A Latent Hope, part 2. We're in a three-part series on biblical lament, and I thought it would be helpful if we could take a look at where we've been and where we'll be going. In our first session, we asked the question, what is lament and should we engage in it, with an emphasis on the Psalms and various biblical laments. In this particular session, we're going to take a look at the book that bears the term, walking through lamentations together. And then in our final session, we'll take a look at the topic, lament, brutally honest worship and witness, with various passages and practical application woven together. I thought it would also be helpful to recap a little bit of the foundational elements of lament that we built in our first session. Remember, the title, A Latent Hope, simply reminds us that lament is a hope we have misunderstood and neglected as Christians. Let's recall some major points from our foundational time together defining and defending lament. First, lament is reaching out to God in our brokenness. It is worship unfettered by facade. We also took a look at the fact that one-third of the Psalms, the book of Hebrew prayer and praise are laments. We took a look at the fact that Jesus himself wept, agonized, and questioned the Father, and that lament lends itself to psychological, church, and personal authenticity as well as earnest worship. Several cultural factors contribute to its neglect. In the second part of the series, we're going to take a look at the book of Lamentations together, and I thought it would be helpful to engage in a little bit of introduction to the book itself. On September 11th of 2001, the United States was reeling from the destruction of the World Trade Center, a financial temple of sorts, and the attack against our country in general. In the aftermath of that day, there was a need to give voice to the collective pain and disbelief stirring within the soul of our nation. In 586 BC, the Babylonians laid waste to Jerusalem and its temple, leaving Judah in need of voicing collective pain and disbelief. Lamentations certainly doesn't perfectly parallel the events of September 11th, make no mistake. However, it did provide the people of God with a sober reminder, joy amidst the sorrow, and a resource of grieving forever preserved in Scripture. Lamentations can be better understood by looking at its background, structure, and message. It can be applied as we understand its purpose and function. It's certainly possible to get lost in a lot of the details and even in some of the surrounding controversies of the scholarship and the introduction of a book like Lamentations, but we're simply going to take a look at a brief introduction to better understand the passage as we engage in it. In regards to the date, it was likely written in the immediate aftermath of the besiegement of Jerusalem and its destruction in 586 B.C., it is possible that it was written a bit later, as such a devastating event would remain vivid for years. Such a window might be 586 to 530 BC. However, I find the language of the book points towards a mourning in the moment. In regards to the author, without going into argumentation for or against, suffice it to say that Jeremiah stands out as the likely author of the book. The title of the book, Lamentations, in the Hebrew Bible actually receives its name from the first word of the book, how? Ekah. As Gavin Beers notes, the first word is used in an exclamatory sense instead of an interrogative one. The title, how, 
in the original Hebrew Bible encapsulates the great tension felt between the righteous judgment of God through the cataclysmic events of the Babylonian destruction and the inherent hope of being the chosen nation of Jehovah. In terms of the history, the background of Lamentations requires examining an often overlooked historical detail of Jerusalem's destruction and understanding the usage of the book down through time. Each of these aspects can aid in further understanding Lamentations in its original historical and cultural context and applying it in our own. Often in thinking of the historical context of Lamentations, our minds default to the destruction of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, and forget that the city was besieged for a prolonged amount of time before the Babylonians made their final push. Mark Dever reminds us that this besiegement must be factored in. Quote, when the Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem for a year and a half in 588 to 587 BC, terrible calamities befell Jerusalem's inhabitants, similar to what befell the citizens of Rome when surrounded by Alaric's army. When the Babylonians finally broke through, they destroyed the temple, the palace, the walls, and Jerusalem itself. End quote. Imagine the poverty and the pestilence that had become apparent as the besiegement wore on. Before the Babylonians broke through, death, disease, disappointment, and depression were already present within the walls of Jerusalem. This must also be considered as we read the words of Lamentations and feel the dejection of Judah. Furthermore, from a modern vantage point, the usage of Lamentations subsequent to the siege and destruction of Jerusalem is important. How did the people of God use this portion of Holy Scripture? Down through time. Dever connects the destruction of the first and second temple with the public reading of Lamentations by the Jewish people even today. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar wrought destruction upon Jerusalem, and in 70 AD, Emperor Titus destroyed the second temple. Both these events, with the first being the immediate historical context of the book, help frame the prophetic call to avoid despair as God's people face spiritual, physical, and emotional despondency. Moreover, the public reading of Lamentations represents the latent hope of the people of God amidst the destruction of the very representation of their special relationship with God. Imagine yourself looking over the smoldering ruins of your city your nation, your hope, your identity, and your relationship with God. In that context, we can really begin to connect with what Lamentations was really trying to convey and the hope that's at the core of the book that it offered to these people who were in the midst of absolute tragedy. And regardless of our own personal circumstances, we can also use this book as a launch pad to worship. It's also worth noting the structure of the book. It is acrostic in nature with various patterns of usage in the Hebrew alphabet for uh, the verses as you go throughout the book, which would have been useful for things like memorization. There's also a crescendo-decrescendo pattern. As already discussed, some view Lamentations as a collection of separate poems. However, it's more likely that one author used a chiastic pattern to express poetic laments that openly grieve and erupt into hope at the core of the work. Lamentations builds from chapters 1 and 2 to verse 20 of chapter 3 
to the climax, which is a turn from complaint to praise, and then it continues to plead until it concludes with a somber yet hopeful prayer. With all of that being said, let's now turn our attention to the book itself. Let's take a look at Lamentations, and we're going to read through it in an outline format with specific passages that represent the core thought within uh, specific sections of the book. And we really want to work our way through some of the introduction material that we've already covered, and we want to feel the weight of the circumstances, and we want to feel the effect of the structure of Lamentations until we get to that climax point, and then we come off of that climax point back down to the concluding somber yet hopeful prayer that wraps it up. So, in terms of the outline, the first part that we're going to read represents mourning for the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this is in chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night, with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers, and she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Again, that represents the first major element within the book of Lamentations, which is the mourning for the destruction of Jerusalem. We see in chapter 2 a second main point, which is mourning for the judgment of God against Jerusalem. And to represent that particular point in the book, we'll read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. And it says, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He is brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in her eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning in lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. So again, that represents the second segment within the book of Lamentations, which is a mourning for the judgment of God against Jerusalem. You saw the focus there in that second chapter in the verses that we read that was really a mourning of the fact that God had turned his face against Jerusalem in this particular context. In the third section, we're going to take a look at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and this represents a prophet's personal and representative mourning. So we'll take a look now at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness he has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And you do see there the personal nature of the author's cry. He's mourning there, and he's doing so in a very uh, personal way. So we turn our attention now, starting in verse 21 
where we just left off in verse 20, and we see a climactic turn to hopeful praise. Few would argue that the author's stance and his mindset, as we've read up to this point, was hopeful. It was quite despondent. But notice the shift and the climax that we reach as we read the next passage. And this is a bit lengthy, but it's it's so important and key to grasp this part of the book. It's the apex of what we see the book of Lamentations trying to communicate. So let's take a look now at chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it, come, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies, without cause, they flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you, and you said, Do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. 
You have seen all their vengeance and all their plots against me. And that is the climactic turn to hopeful praise that we see in the book. And what a powerful moment when the author begins to erupt into hope even amidst the great tragedy that's already been outlined. And so now we do take a look as we continue the movement, as it's built up to this climax, it's now going to go back down into transparency and um, authenticity and a real, uh, a real struggle with reality at the moment. And so we take a look at chapter 4 where we see a mourning for the repercussions of judgment and destruction. And this is going to be chapter 4 and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion work their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. And so the repercussions are made clear, and there is a mourning for it. Now we shift our attention to chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. And here we see clearly a summary of Judah's condition. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. And then the final part of the book, and we'll read verses 19 through 22 of chapter 5 is a concluding, hopeful, and brutally honest plea for restoration. We'll turn our attention now to verse 19, and we'll finish out through the conclusion of the book of Lamentations. Starting in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Unfortunately, the book of Lamentations can often be overlooked because it's perceived as being perhaps gloomy, but in reality it's just wrestling with reality of sorrow and tragedy, and it gives God's people the ability to voice their pain and to worship God even in the midst of that. 
Obviously, the book of Lamentations is anchored in history to Jerusalem's destruction. However, its place within the canon of Scripture affords it much broader applications as well. Lamentations is a revelation of God, a brutally honest cry of hope amid sorrow within a specific historical context, and a scriptural paradigm for believers to wrestle through the personal and corporate issues of justice, doubt, judgment, and hope. First and foremost, as with all of Scripture, Lamentations is a revelation of the characteristics of God, and so we must look for the central character as God himself in the book of Lamentations, as with all of Scripture. But second, the specific historical backdrop suggests the purpose of providing a voice to the people of God who undoubtedly felt adrift in a sea of judgment. This is evidenced by the fact that these words are read in synagogues even in our day in remembrance of the tragic destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and 70 A.D. I can imagine survivors of the onslaught being speechless, yet desperately needing to cry out to God in words that simply would not come. Lamentations provided those words. And finally, God providentially designed Lamentations to be a part of the canon of Scripture so that all believers could understand and give voice to lament. As believers today read Lamentations, they should encounter God in all of His glory, His justice, His judgment, His holiness, His sovereignty, and His faithfulness, and understand the setting of God's people in 586 B.C., yet offer their own painful experiences to God in praise as well. In terms of application, at the climax of the book, we see an almost indefinable term give shape to the very character of God and the foundation of our very hope. It's the word hesed. In verse 22, the turning point of the book, we see that Jeremiah has hope because he calls to mind the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love is the word hesed, and it is translated as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, favor, goodness, and merciful in the King James Version, just to list a few. Possible definitions might include unexpected favor, surprising grace, unmerited forgiveness, unsolicited love, or compassionate grace. I like to think of it as the very character of God that shapes the gospel itself. That is what Jeremiah calls to mind to offer hope in the midst of destruction. It's also important to know God in the fullness of his character. He is the God who used the Babylonians to bring judgment on his rebellious people, and he is the God who is known by his hesed, his steadfast love, offering hope and his presence amidst the rubble of their rebellion. Instead of explaining pain, it helps us to face grief. Remember in our last session that while lament may begin by asking why, this book literally begins by exclaiming how, it transitions to asking where. God is there and will always be there. His hesed guarantees it. The point is that we don't find an answer to our questions, we find his presence in our sorrows. Lamentations teaches us that grief is not 
just a personal sorrow. It is a community sorrow as seen through Jeremiah pouring out his pain and the pain of his people. And it is also preserved forever in God's word for all of God's people to join the voices of all weary sojourners and mourners to reach out to God in the midst of their own city of ruins. As we conclude, I thought that it would be helpful to quote Walter C. Kaiser extensively here. And I think he gets right at the heart of the power and the benefit and really the neglected substance of this wonderful book. Here's what he says, quote, Oftentimes the believer has not been aided or prepared by solid exposition of Scripture or a theology of suffering to cope with the suffering as it comes in national disaster, death, depression, separation, rejection, or the like. Too frequently, the only place many turn in such circumstances is to medically trained clinicians. This is not to say that a referral to the medical profession is not altogether appropriate at times, but we do maintain that grief management, as the phrase goes these days, is the business of the gospel as well. Instead of sporting techniques, answers, slogans, lamentations, supplies, orientation, a voice for working completely through grief from A to Z, instruction on how and what to pray, and a focal point in God's faithfulness and in the fact that He is our portion. Is that not what we need in the midst of trouble and calamity? Surely comfort, community, compassion, companionship, and conclusion to suffering are all found in this marvelous little book inserted in the biblical corpus for people and times like ours. Well, that concludes part two of our three-part series on biblical lament, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope that our walk through the book of Lamentations has been helpful to you. Well, now comes the point in the show where we'd like to shift into a little bit more of a, a nerdy section, if you will. And we ran a poll on Twitter which asked this question, Who would you prefer to lead worship? And the options given were Commander Worf uh, with Klingon Opera, the EMH from Voyager, Vic Fontaine from DS9, or Lieutenant Uhura. And the results were as follows. 44% of people said uh, Mr. Worf with Klingon Opera, 22% said the EMH from Voyager, 6% said Vic Fontaine from DS9, and 28% said Lieutenant Uhura. So those are the results. Thanks to everyone who voted. Thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast. Let me encourage you to connect with me at calvinistpicard.com where you can go and, of course, listen to previous podcasts. You can also take a look at the Captain's blog. And let me really encourage you to go to the first contact page and leave feedback about what you think. And all feedback is welcome. And it only helps me to improve in terms of writing and in terms of podcasting. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to tune in next month where we'll take a look at part three of our series on biblical lament. As we conclude this week's episode, this is a quick shout out to everyone that Calvinist Picard has found his way into a parallel universe and can now be found on Facebook. Thanks for listening.